Recorded live. Good morning, Northern Maine. Welcome to the Northern Maine Landman Show on the Constitutional Radio Network, The Conscience of Maine. Broadcast today on TalkShoe Radio. Just Google it, search for the Northern Maine Landman, and you're in. It's uh, You're hearing this on Saturday, March 18th, 2016, where there is an apple seed in progress at Monmouth, Maine. 
It's uh, 12 miles southeast of Augusta, right on Route 202. Can't miss it. Right on the right on the main drag. Project Appleseed is is an event put on by Project Appleseed, and it's it tells the history of what happened on April 19, 1775, at Lexington and Concord. And we also tell, teach marksmanship. So all we do is teach history and marksmanship. That's it. We don't talk about the politicians that are active today. The only politicians we talk about were alive on April 19, 1775. And we tell the story of what happened when all those colonials who the Redcoats regarded as rabble these Americans stood up, left their homes, picked up their powder horns and balls and muskets and headed out to join their militias on the battlefield. It, they didn't know it was going to be a battlefield for sure, but they knew that those redcoats were not going to take our firearms. That was it. You reach a point where they just say no. Our country was founded on the principles of dissent, protest, and civil disobedience. We didn't like the rules that the, the tyrants were in, trying to impose on us. So we disobeyed the rules. And we had civil disobedience. We said, no, we're not compliant. In the Bible, it says that men should have liberty. And we, those old-time colonials, believed it. So when they when they headed out, Paul Revere found out from several different sources that the regulars were going to be out. And he didn't ride out saying, the, the British are coming, the British are coming. We're all British. He said, the regulars are out. Those are the actual words that he used. And he would ride into a village, and and he'd go one of three places. Middle of the night, 2 o'clock in the morning, go banging on the door. He would go to the storekeeper, who knew everybody in town. He would go to the minister, who knew everybody in town. And he would go to the doctor, one of those three or sometimes more than one. And he would notify them that the regulars were out and they were coming to Lexington and they're going to try to get John Adams and uh, and capture him. And they were going to seize our firearms and our munitions and our provisions. This was April 19th. And it been a long winter down there. And snow was gone Farmers were just starting to get into their fields, and, and uh, they turned out on Lexington Green, right in the middle of town. There's a fork in the road, and the left-hand fork goes to Concord, and the right-hand fork goes up to Bedford and Weymouth, and, and uh, not Weymouth, Bedford and Rentham, and uh, several other places. So that's where Hanscom Field is today the Air Force Base, and the civilian airfield. Anyway, and Route 2 today in Massachusetts is still called Battle Road because of the battle that occurred there. It was a running battle. It didn't didn't take place in one place, like the Battle of Saratoga, for example, a year later. It took place, it was a running battle along the road, and it's an adventure. It is a magnificent story of the courage that, that our forefathers showed. There was no good medical care. There was no Veterans Administration. There was no retirement fund or life insurance. They took those great risks personally, left their families, and went out onto the the field. No guarantees. Facing the most powerful army in the world. 
And John Parker stood there on Lexington Green, said, Men, do not fire unless fired upon, but if they mean to have a war, let it begin here. He didn't say it in a very loud voice because the man had tuberculosis. Back then it was called consumption. And he couldn't take a deep breath. And he couldn't run very far. Didn't want to run. He wanted to stand and fight. And that morning, eight colonials fell and died on Lexington Green. Others died weeks and months later from their wounds because there was no such thing as antibiotics. And when you got blood poisoning, they'd cut your leg off. And if the blood poisoning went up further, they'd cut it off a little higher. No anesthetics. People knew this. People knew what needed to be done, and they did it. They gritted their teeth and endured it, just as they had for thousands of years before on battlefields and up through up through the Civil War. And then after the Civil War, they discovered laudanum and ether, which made surgery a whole lot more efficient for everybody concerned. You didn't need to have six men holding down the the patient, while they amputated his leg. On Lexington Green, we had eight men fall. Two men from Auburn came running onto Lexington Green just before the fighting broke out. And John Parker's men had all had not all assembled yet. They were still people coming from their homes because they they turned out at 3 o'clock in the morning and waited around for an hour and they didn't see any any redcoats coming so John Parker sent them all home he says, go home, stand by be ready it was cold out 3 o'clock in the morning, April 19th they didn't have down vests and insulated parkas the way we do today they had woolen clothes and it was cold out so we sent them home to get warm. Two men from Woburn ran on to Lexington Green before the full militia had assembled. John Parker said to those two men that he did not know, these men did not know John Parker, will you stand with us? They looked at each other and said, we will. And they fell in with the Lexington militia. Even though they were from Woburn, it wasn't their town. But it was their fight. I got a shirt on right now. <clears throat> on the front is embroidered 13 colonies, one nation, one people, one day. April 19, 1775 is the day we became a nation. A year later, on the 4th of July, 1776, we declared our independence from England. Well, on April 19, 1775, 14 months earlier, 15 months earlier, we stood at Lexington Green and became a nation. They had had congresses. Now, a congress is a group of people assembled for a purpose. And they had congresses, congresses earlier from all 13 colonies that had come together, and they decided that if the Redcoats attacked Massachusetts that the other colonies would come to their assistance. This was already planned. But there was a rule that they adopted. Do not fire unless fired upon. Do not start a revolution. Do not attack the Redcoats, even though you you disagree with them and you're thoroughly irritated by their conduct and behavior. Do not attack them, because if we attacked first, the other colonies weren't going to come and help. But they did. The other colonies did show up. Not that day, certainly, because it takes time. You know, They didn't have ham radio. They didn't have cell phones. But when those redcoats came out to Lexington and beyond, they could hear musket shots and cannon fire and church bells ringing in the night. They knew that 
the populace was alarmed. They spelled it A-L-A-R-U-M. Alarum. That's how they pronounced it. Later in our language, they dropped the letter U and they called it an alarm. But that's how that's how it all happened. And the reason that they were all alarmed all over the all over the place is that when Paul Revere went into a village and said that the the regulars are out. Riders went out from that town to other towns. And riders would go out from those towns, and it spread. It spread like wildfire all the way up to almost up to the New Hampshire border, almost down to the Connecticut line, west to Worcester, Massachusetts. And and they, they sent, they sent a, a group of their militia back toward Concord, but it was all over by the time they got there. And later, they had people come from all over to uh, resist the British at Bunker Hill. And after April 19th, 1775, the Redcoats were never able to leave Boston again by land. They had them bottled up in the city, and they didn't dare to come out and go out those roads. They knew what happened last time. They did not want to try it again. Well, this is a very brief summary as to what happened that day. But at, uh, at, that's, that's Lexington, okay, where the men from Auburn said they would stand with the Lexington militia. And then they went on out to Concord. And it's a big story. And we tell it in three phases. Uh, we refer to it as the three strikes of the match. The first strike is, you know, you strike a wooden match and it, it spits, but it doesn't ignite. And then you, and that's up through Lexington and Concord. And then the first strike is Lexington. The second strike is Concord. Uh, Lexington we didn't pursue the British from Lexington at that moment. After after we had eight people killed and the, and the Redcoats continued on to Concord, they gathered their dead and buried them right there on Lexington Green. And those eight names are there today of the seven men from Lexington. And one of those who was from Woburn was killed, and they buried him right at on Lexington Green. Buried them all there and covered up the graves with brush so the British wouldn't uh, wouldn't dig them up. Then they went on to Concord, and the men of men in Concord stood at North Bridge and they said, "You are not coming across this bridge." And a couple of shots rang out. The British were nervous and they had their muskets cocked, and the Colonials had muskets. And neither side had rifles. There were no rifles at Lexington or Concord on April 19, 1775. And at Concord Bridge, they said no. And the British, a couple of British soldiers, fired their muskets by accident. And then they all began to fire. And colonial spell at Northbridge. And Major Buttrick, who was leading several militias, said, firemen, fire as fast as you can, and the colonials opened up on them. And the British were all lined up a, up a road that led down to the bridge. And when you fire into a column of redcoats, you're going to make hits. You might not hit the guy you aimed at, but you're going to hit somebody. And when that first volley opened up, 40% of the British officers fell in that first volley because all of our troops were trained, shoot at the brightest red coats. They're the, they're the, the best uniforms. The brightest red was the officers. So they fired at the officers first. The British regarded this as unsportsmanlike <laughs> because the officers were kind of just... 
you know, giving the orders, even in Europe, you know, it was unsportsmanlike to shoot the officers because they might be nobility and they didn't want to shoot the, old, the other noblemen. You might need them to, to pinch hit and father some children in a different country. That's how nobility worked, you know. It was kind of a of a, uh, a gentleman's agreement that you wouldn't shoot the officers. Well, we had no such thing. We shot the officers. And they didn't have a first sergeant that would step up and take over. Without the officers, they were an unruly mob, and they were in panic. And they turned around, they ran. The most powerful army in the world turned around and ran at the North Bridge in Concord. What a remarkable thing. And and there's a, I won't tell the whole story. <laughs> you have to, have to come to an apple seed. But you don't have to come to a two-day apple seed. We will come to you. Project Appleseed does what we call Liberty Seeds. We come and we tell this story. We bring some of the flags that were used during the Revolutionary War. Most of the flags had a cross on them or had a an evergreen tree. The pine tree or the spruce tree was regarded as a symbol of eternal life. You know, they don't lose their leaves in the fall. They stay green all winter and uh, regarded it back at that time as a symbol of eternal life. And people planted these as ornamental trees in their yards and around farms and stuff. And it was just uh, it was a morale builder to have evergreen trees in the wintertime because winters were tougher then. I don't mean that the weather was any tougher. The weather is probably just about exactly as it is right now. But Conditions were tougher. I mean, you had to cut your firewood with axes and saws, and mostly axes. And that's how you put up your wood. Most homes, Ben Franklin had not invented the Franklin stove. They they didn't have cast iron stoves. They had fireplaces. And they had fireplaces that, with, with a single chimney and two a fireplace in one room, and on the opposite side of the wall, a fireplace in a different room, and they kept the home fires burning. They knew how to make fire without matches, using a, a bow and dry hardwood to make a spark and blow on it and ignite. So they could they could start a fire without a match. I could start a fire without a match in a pinch, but went out to rescue somebody. I got an emergency call, and somebody was out in the woods, and probably very few people knew where this person was, but she called me. And she had tipped her snowmobile over in April, and she was stuck, and she was in trouble. She had hypothermia. I said, well, I'm coming, but it's going to take me a while. I had to put on my own heavy clothing, waterproof, and I also had to uh, also had to load the snowmobile on a trailer and go from my house out to Carroll and out into the Willy Waws in the backside of Carroll to make a rescue. And if I got stuck, I wanted to have a fire. It was raining. It was about 33 degrees and rain at that moment. And I was dressed. I was going to be warm and dry. But if I was going to be stuck out there beside the trail and not be able to travel, I was going to have a fire. I didn't have a match. I had a one-pound propane bottle with a self-igniting torch. I could have a fire. That was in my rescue toboggan because I didn't know what I was going to find when I got there. I had a rescue toboggan behind the snowmobile. And I found this lady, gave her a ride out to where her sled was tipped over, got her sled tipped right side up, and she'd gone off the hard surface of the trail into some soft stuff, and it was wet. It was raining. It was, you know, you go right to your knees when you step off the trail. So, got her home. She went in. We had a cup of hot tea, and I called my wife and says, hey, I'm indoors in Carroll. I'll be heading out in a couple of minutes right after I have a cup of tea, and got back on my sled, rode back out to Route 6, where my trailer was, 
and uh, had a heck of a time turning my sled around, getting it back up on the trailer because my carbides were worn out on the skis. But I made it home. This grand total of about three hours. But helped the lady. She got. She was in trouble. She was in serious trouble. She had hypothermia, but her she had a nice warm house. She turned up the thermostat, six miles out in the woods, and gas heat and wood heat. She's very independent and self-sufficient individual, but anybody can get in trouble. I know of a situation where a man came to his camp on Junior Lake years ago now, 20, 25 years ago. Came out to his camp in the spring, and uh, of course the camps face the lake. The back of the camp is away from the lake. And he came out to this camp and, and walked, stepped up on the front porch, and there was a wind, broken window in his door. The window had nine panes of glass in the front door, and one of them was broken by the doorknob. He saw, oh, no, been on. This camp had been in the family for years and never had any trouble. And he opened the door with his key and stepped in. And there was a piece of of brown paper on the table with a piece of kindling wood on the paper. And there was a note. And it said, Mister, I'm sorry I had to break into your camp. I fell through the ice trapping, and if I didn't break in, I would have died. I took two cans of soup and dried my had a fire in the fire, in the wood stove and dried my clothes and underneath the the piece of brown paper bag there was a twenty dollar bill and he said here's twenty dollars for your soup and your window. Didn't sign it. <laughs> That's what it used to be like in rural Maine. There's a lot of camps in Maine back then that were not locked. Now, due to the changes in in public behavior, most camps are locked. A lot of camps are barred with iron bars and rugged doors. I mean, you, you'd have to take a chainsaw of the building to get in. Uh, the way it is, our society has changed and continues to change. But we may come back. We just might come back, and we've made a made a gesture at it last November at the election, and we took the the media totally by surprise. I mean, election night, I stayed up until two or three o'clock in the morning. I wasn't sleepy. I was happy at the way things turned out, and. A week before the election, my neighbor at my camp lives there year-round on a lake. And and they stopped in Lincoln, and they wanted to pick up a loaf of bread or or half a gallon of milk or something. They needed to run in anyway in the store, and this lady stepped out, and she started walking across the parking lot, and a pickup truck came flying through there way too fast to be in a parking lot and hit the lady. This lady weighs about 100 pounds soaking wet, and she's knocked through the air flying. She has two hearing aids. Both hearing aids went flying, and she got a, broke her pelvis, injured her shoulder, broke some ribs, and she was laying there, a great big lump on her head. They cut an orange in half. She had a lump on her head that big where her head hit the ground when she flying through the air, knocked unconscious. But she was breathing, and she had a pulse. And they found one hearing aid, never did find the second hearing aid. And this was a week before the election. So I went into the town office, and I got two absentee ballots, one for her and one for her husband. He witnessed this, but he was sitting in the vehicle. Man gets around with a walker, and he didn't need to get out. This, this 77-year-old lady is, is just as spry as a 30-year-old lady. She gardens, she cuts wood, she, she uh, keeps a beautiful home. And, and uh, she was in the hospital in Bangor with a broken pelvis. So I got I got a ballot for her 
in a ballot for her husband, went down to Bangor, went in the hospital, and she was surprised to see me. I said, hey, I brought you a ballot. Oh, good. She said, I was afraid I was going to get to vote. So I showed her that you know, she had to sign the envelope, but don't sign the ballot. Okay. So I went to step out of the room. She said, oh, come on in. You stay right here. Okay. She announced loudly to anybody that could listen who she was voting for. She went down through. She started at the top. She says, I don't want that witch in my White House. <laughs> and she made her mark on the ballot for Donald Trump. And when she started yelling, the nurses came running. What's the matter? What's the matter? She said, I'm just voting. And she announced each one right down through who she was voting for. Home to watch. We have an independent streak, we Americans, and we have had it with the establishment, the bureaucracy, both in Washington and in Augusta. And that's why Paul LePage is governor today. Paul LePage is, uh, was elected with more votes than any other governor in the history of the state of Maine. Grassroots love him. The establishment and the progressives hate him. That's the way it is. They just do not like Governor LePage. And the newspapers don't like him. So, finally, uh, we've got a governor in there that has got some common sense and, and sticks up for the people. He, uh, we just... <clears throat> Legislature is considering a bill on real ID. Now, real ID is a is a driver's license with your picture on it, which is digitized uh, for facial recognition, and it also has a magnetic strip with a whole lot of personal data on you such as whether you happen to have a concealed firearms permit and lots of other personal information, medical information and physical location of your uh, address when the license was issued. And there's lots of stuff on there that are intrusive. Educational background, military background. You can put a lot of information on a magnetic strip. And we said, no, we're not doing that. Well, the legislature has a bill right now that would allow people in Maine to get a driver's license without this, but those people that need it, that have it. So if you've got a guy that works for Chinbro and he's a welder or he's a heavy equipment operator and they're doing a job at Portsmouth Naval Shipyard, okay, there's just an example, or Bath Iron Works or wherever, and they need to do some construction. And they, Chimbro gets the bid. If you've got a main driver's license, they won't let you in the gate at Portsmouth. So Chimbro's got to hire people from other states to do this job. We're going to have a driver's license that has the chip in it and the magnetic strip and all of the personal information in there, if you want it, that's going to cost you $55 for that driver's license. But you can have an ordinary main driver's license without all that personal information and biometric information, blood type and everything in there. You know, all, all your personal information is going to be on that strip if you opt for it for $55. You can get a regular main driver's license for $35. It's still going to have your picture and your date of birth, and it's going to have your home address. But it's going to be just like the driver's license you have today if you opt out of this. Now, I don't intend to fly. I haven't flown since since much of this stuff started. When they came when they came out with with the intrusive. Homeland Security policies that they have. 
I quit flying. I just don't fly. And now, of course, Maine has constitutional carry. So you can carry on a daily basis, which I do. But you can't go in the post office, and you can't go in the federal building down down in Bangor if you've got some business. If you want to go to the Social Security Administration down there on the fourth floor, you can't go in there with with a jackknife that's got a blade longer than one and seven-eighths inches, and you can't go in there with a leatherman. You can't go in there with a handgun. With a handgun. You, know, you just can't do that in a federal building because they write their own rules. And I pulled in, I had a customer in in my vehicle, and it was raining, and I needed to mail something. So I pulled up beside the post office, not on post office property. And there's four vehicles parked there in the parking lot. Nobody's parked in front of the post office. So I ran in, conducted my business, ran back out, jumped in the truck. I said, why don't you park right in front? I said, I got a firearm in this vehicle. I didn't tell him I was had it in my pocket. Get a firearm in this vehicle. It's illegal to have a firearm on federal property. That's why people aren't parking in front. You have to park off federal property. Jeez, that's a stupid rule. I said, yeah, I know it's a stupid rule, but it is a rule. It's a law. It's a violation of federal law if you walk in the post office with a handgun in your pocket. Don't forget, because if somebody's in there and they happen to notice can see the print of the handgun in your pocket. You know, you could be arrested and charged in, in federal court for violating a federal law, and the penalties are severe. I don't know what the penalties are, but they're thoroughly disagreeable. Don't do that. New Hampshire has just passed a law that you can have constitutional carry in New Hampshire. You want to carry? You can carry in your vehicle. Locked, cocked, and ready to go. But in New Hampshire, you cannot carry on a snowmobile or an ATV without a concealed firearms permit. Kind of an odd situation. You can ride around in Concord, New Hampshire, downtown with a concealed firearm in your vehicle, on your person, but you can't go in the post office, of course. But you can't get on a snowmobile and ride out in the woods with it. And this is something the game, Fish and Game Department wanted to enact. They wanted to keep that provision. In order to get it through the legislature, that provision had to be there. Now, there are snowmobile trails in western Maine that zigzag back and forth across the state line. So you're so you're riding up the snowmobile trail, and you cross into New Hampshire. And you go about three miles, and you cross back into Maine again. And this is south of Route 2. And it's in the White Mountain National Forest. The National Forest is not like a national park yet. You know, and they have they had a big hoorah when Maine passed constitutional carry. Are we going to let Maine citizens go into Acadia National Park without having to go through a scanner like they have at the airport, you know. <laughs> that was actually considered, you know, the, in order to, to walk up the, the hiking trail up Cadillac Mountain before sunrise, uh, you're going to have to go through a body scanner to see if you're carrying. And I don't know how that turned out. But I know you can carry in Acadia National Park. Maybe not in the administrative building. I don't know what. They get all kinds of peculiar rules. But we're going to have, it looks like we're going to have an option on real ID so that Maine people who are going to go on to federal facilities can have a real ID. During the discussion, I talked to some politicians Bruce Poliquin, by the way, is in favor of real ID. He's not too concerned about this intrusiveness into our personal information. And I had a chat with him this past week about it, face-to-face. I was at down near Augusta, and I had a, a Lincoln Day breakfast 
in Kennebec County. A whole bunch of people from Kennebec County came to this breakfast, and Bruce Pollockman spoke there. I told him I had three things that I wanted to talk to him about, and one of them was his real ID. He didn't realize how intrusive this thing was, and some people still like to have their persons and papers secure, as is stated in the Fourth Amendment to the Constitution. He hadn't looked at it from a constitutional point of view, and you can see he was thinking. You know. And that's since then, the legislature has come out and said, you know, we're going to be going to be able to. Some people are going to be able to opt out of this. Now, when you look at this driver's license, I don't know how different it's going to be from the one that is authorized for in, for entry into military bases, such as Portsmouth Naval Shipyard or or Bath Iron Works is not a military base, but you're going to be on and off military ships working there sometimes. So that's you're going to have the option. And I wonder how much of an option it really is. I mean, the average person is not going to be able to to take a look at his own driver's license to see what information is on there. And the federal government, through its 14 different security agencies. Now, we know about the National Security Agency. We know about Homeland Security. And we know about the Department of Defense military IDs for Army, Navy, Air Force, and Coast Guard. Various other, the FBI and the CIA and all kinds of federal. There's 14 of these federal agencies that are, that are investigating people all the time. The problem, one of the problems is the intrusion on our personal privacy. But another problem is that these people don't talk to each other. They compete. They're like a league of teams that don't help each other. Now, baseball teams and football teams and hockey teams don't help each other. They compete. They regard the other ones as opponents. Not enemies, but opponents. And they try to achieve tactical advantages from each other and still do it within the law. Federal government agencies are competing with each other and they're not doing it within the law. Those Congress critters stood up there and holding hind legs down there in Washington and they swore, no, no, they weren't surveilling people. Well, guess what? The IRS was attacking Tea Party people. If you were active in the Tea Party, the IRS would just harass you and harass you. You and your business and your friends and everybody associated with you was attacked by the IRS. Illegally. Nobody was ever, never, Nobody ever went to jail about that. Yet, the progressives in our country want to let in all these ISIS people that want to behead us into our country without even looking at them, without even questioning them. If you've got somebody from Bulgaria, okay, which is kind of a small, relatively quiet country in Europe, it's on the west shore of the Black Sea, and it's a farming and industrial country. If you want to come to the United States on vacation, you have to go go to the United States Embassy and get a visa. And then you can come to the country. You can spend 15 days in America. You want to have a little cushion on the end in case you get delayed so that your visa doesn't expire. And they'll stamp your visa says, yep, he's got, a, he's got a right to be here, and then he goes home and they stamp it again on the way out. That's the way it's supposed to work. But Barack Hussein Obama was sending private jets down to Nicaragua, El Salvador, Ecuador, and flying teenagers up here into the country on private jets, turning them loose, no visa, no vetting of any kind. And then they could send for their family. And they would come up, because you don't want to break up families, so the whole family's got to be here. 
The next thing you know, it's the aunts and the uncles and the grandparents. That they want to come up here and collect Social Security, even though they never never worked here, we're never citizens here, but we put them on Social Security and free Medicare. Meanwhile, under Obamacare, you've got the truck driver who drives a logging truck, and he's going to pay $7,000 a year to insure his family, or they'll put him in jail. This is what what's happened in our country. Talking about getting on the base at at uh, Bath Ironworks, for example, onto onto the ship. Now the environmentalists have come out and they said they don't want the state to dredge the Kennebec River. Well, rivers wash sand downstream. The current moves sand. The moving ice grinds away at the riverbanks, and sand flows downhill to the lower portions of the river. And the way the motion of the current rolls the sand along, going downstream, and it forms sandbars. They don't. The environmentalists don't want the state to dredge the Kennebec River, so that the new ships can be launched and go down river from Bath. You've got 5,500 people working at Bath in various capacities. Secretaries, administrators, computer people, engineers, welders, and ship fitters. We make the best ships in the whole world. We really do. They launched the Zumwalt down there. I met I met Vice Admiral Elmo Zumwalt in Vietnam. We were I was at a place called Nabe, which is on a peninsula about fifteen, twenty miles south of Saigon on the on the Basak River. No, on the Long Tao River. Long Tao River comes from the South China Sea up to Saigon. And tankers, Dutch tankers owned by Royal Dutch Shell, would come up the river, unload in Saigon or near Saigon, down up at Long Bend, just above Saigon. They'd unload jet fuel and various other products. And back down the river they go. And one of my jobs was to fly overhead cover for these ships so that the Viet Cong didn't shoot at them. Or if they did, we'd shoot back at the Viet Cong and suppress that fire. The ships were... We're uh, very happy to have this overhead cover. And then we went up into Cambodia, protecting ships going up to Phnom Penh in Cambodia. That was a bad place. No friendlies up there. So uh, one day the, the ship got down to the mouth of the river at Long Tao, which is a little fishing village. That's the river's named after the Long Tao River. And captain called the radio and says, how would you like the beer? What beer? Well, last time we gave some, some Dutch beer to the to the boats and told them to pass it on to you. <laughs> captain, that is not a viable plan. I said, you give give a few cases of beer to the boats, so that's going to be gone before they get back to Nabe. <laughs> we didn't get any beer. He said, well, here, we'll lower some down. So they took a cargo net, and they lowered a bunch of cases of beer down to the boats, these PBRs. Had the PBR put their antennas down. We flew alongside the PBR, and the PBR sailors handing cases of beer to my door gunner in the Huey. We got a few cases of beer into the Huey and moved away. And the captain says, there you go, you got them now. Well, Next time, you let us know how you like it. It was Dutch beer. is good beer. They got more alcohol in Dutch beer than they do in Budweiser. So, anyway, we flew back up. And then the captain took, had taken a picture of the PBR sailors handing cases of beer to my door gunner. And he sent a letter to my commanding officer thanking us for providing the overhead cover. Well, the captain got in his personal Huey and flew up to our base. We had a little chat. <laughs> he says, don't do that anymore. <laughs> okay, captain, I will not do that anymore. 
I learned in this life that it is far easier to obtain forgiveness than it is to obtain permission. If you ask somebody for permission to do something, you are empowering that person, giving him a responsibility and a task that he did not want and does not want and did not ever want to get involved in this. And now you're asking him for permission to do something, which is kind of out of the ordinary. The remedy for this situation is don't ask permission. Just do it. And then if they say, don't ever do that again, you can agree. Okay, I won't ever do that again. Thank you very much. But you did it. And you got away with it. And it gladdens the cockles of your pee-picking heart. So, we're going to be headed out after this broadcast. i got 12 minutes to go here. And we're going to head out, and we're going to head down to Monmouth, Maine, and we're going to have a Project Appleseed shoot. We refer to these shoots that occur in such conditions as winter seeds because it's shot in the wintertime. And if you qualify as a rifleman on the U.S. Army expert course in winter conditions, you get a winter seed patch. It's just like the regular apple seed patch, which comes in either either tan or olive. You can sew it on your jacket or frame it and hang it on the wall. Whatever you want to do with it, you get one. The winter seed patch is blue, white, and black. And hanging off the bottom is blue and white icicles hanging off the bottom of the patch. It is a coveted thing. not supposed to covet but people really want these patches. But you have to do it in winter conditions. This weekend, we are going to have winter conditions. I didn't mention the weather at the beginning or anything about petroleum. But we're going to have real winter conditions. Now, it's supposed to be partly cloudy on on, Mon- on Saturday, today, when you're hearing this just as it is Friday when this was recorded. Partly cloudy, below freezing, not too much wind. Too much wind is difficult, uh, makes it more difficult to shoot. But we're going to shoot in the prone position in the snow. We're going to shoot in the sitting position in the snow. And we're going to shoot in the standing position in the snow. And if you qualify as an expert, you will get a winter seed patch. We have four open spots on the line. If you want to come to, uh, if you hear, if you're hearing this at 9 a.m. on Saturday, we're already running. <laughs> but you can come, and you can check in late, and we'll give you the safety brief and, and some instruction. And you can, if you're late, we'll still let you in. And you can shoot all day Sunday. First round doesn't go off till 9 a.m., but we, we'll shoot Sunday and we'll stay. We've got the daylight. We'll stay. And if you haven't made it and you're close and knocking on the door, as we say, we want you to succeed. We don't throw any barriers in front of you that will prevent you from succeeding, other than your own abilities at that moment. We talk about the six steps of firing the shot. It's sight alignment. You have to get your front and your rear sights lined up. Like picture, where do you put that? Well, we teach the center hold. Bullseye shooters hold at the six o'clock position because they want to just, just touch the bottom of that target, but their bullet will hit the center of the target. We have a different outlook. We want a center hold. Because if you're shooting at a red squirrel, you want to hit the red squirrel dead center. And if you're shooting at a moose, you want to hit the moose dead center. If you're shooting at a moose with a 6 o'clock hold, you're going to put a bullet furrow right through his belly hair, and you're not going to touch anything that's important. That's why we don't teach a 6 o'clock hold. So sight alignment, sight picture. Respiratory pause. If you're breathing, you're moving. Your rifle is moving. 
Absolutely true. So pause in your breath. Now don't take a deep breath and hold it. Just kind of pause your breathing for a moment. Focus your eye on the front sight. Focus your mind on keeping the front sight on the target. Squeeze the trigger. Bam. And take a mental picture. Where was it? Was it dead center? Was it perfect? Or was it off to the right? Or was it on the way up or down? Take a mental picture as to where that rifle was when it went bang. We started out with a red coat target. And it's just a, a red silhouette target. And it's various sizes. You put three rounds in the big target, three rounds in the second target, three rounds in the third target, three rounds in the fourth target, tiny little target down the bottom, hard to hit. And that represents a target at 100, 200, 300, 400 yards. And then there's a square off to the side. And that is Daniel Morgan's single. And you try to put one round on that. That's the size of a man's head at 250 yards. Not very big. But Daniel Morgan had a company of riflemen in Pennsylvania. The Germans brought rifle technology to Pennsylvania. And Daniel Morgan had a company of riflemen. To be able to belong to Daniel Morgan's rifle company, you had to be able to hit a pumpkin at 250 yards. Now there weren't any thousand-pound pumpkins at the county fair in 1775. A pumpkin was the size of a man's head. If you could hit a pumpkin at 250 yards, you could be a rifleman. If you couldn't hit it at 250 yards, you could be a cook and peel the potatoes. And if you, once you made it, you were a rifleman. It was a status symbol. Daniel Morgan wrote a letter to King George in England. He said, King George, if you have any idea of sending any more officers over here to America, you tell them to put their affairs in order before they leave because there is not a rifleman in my company that cannot put a rifle ball through a British officer's head at 250 yards. Whoa, that caused a sensation in London, I'll tell you. So, a lot of British officers decided they would rather go to India instead of America because the civilians in India didn't have rifles. So they all wanted, they wanted to go to India with their families. Most of the officers that traveled, you know, they didn't go for a six-month tour or an eight-month tour and come home. They went for years. They were posted to places like Kabul and Afghanistan. In 1830, in Afghanistan, the British diplomats, soldiers, and merchants at the Grand Market in Kabul celebrated Christmas. And the Afghanistan chiefs, the Gizli chiefs, were insulted because it was an insult to the prophet that we had established that we had celebrated Christmas honoring Jesus Christ in Afghanistan. And the chiefs came to the British consulate and they said, You got two weeks to get out of town. You go back to India. You leaving Afghanistan. There were twelve thousand Brits in Afghanistan. They said, You got two weeks to get out of here. The following day the chiefs came to the consulate again and says, we don't see you packing. You've got 13 days to get out of Afghanistan. Because we can't go up through the Khyber Pass to India. There was no Pakistan back then. We can't go up through the Khyber Pass to India in the wintertime. And he says, you've got 13 days to get out of town. And 13 days later, the Muslims in Afghanistan marched the British out of Kabul. 12,000 of them, men, women, and children. They marched them out of there, back toward India. And they cut the throat of the last one in line to keep them moving. They cut the throats of all 12,000 British as they went up through the Khyber Pass. The last one in line, they cut their throat. 
And there was a doctor who had treated the children of the Gisley Chiefs, and they liked this doctor. And they sent him across the line into India on a burrow or a donkey with a note that don't come back. This is this is what we face today is savages like this. This history is not taught in schools. They're not taught about John Parker standing on the green on Lexington and said, do not fire unless fired upon, but if they mean to have a war, let it begin here. You talk about the courage of that man, 38 years old, with tuberculosis, standing there. He could have stayed in bed that day. He stood there as an American leader. Think of the British, men, women, and children, marching up through the Khyber Pass, being sniped at by Gisley warriors on both sides and having their throats cut, men, women, and children, all the way to India. 12,000 Brits. And And Dr. Boyden came to me. Dr. Boyden, uh, it's all up there, folks. Just a couple of pages back. I don't have to look this stuff up. Dr. Boyden went across into India with a note that said, don't come back. There's a great trading center there in the market in Kabul. India, actually, I mean, excuse me, Afghanistan borders China. Way up in the northeast corner, they have a Chinese border. And the uh, I, I mentioned a few weeks ago about, about the Uyghurs. The Uyghurs are a very fierce people in western China. They're Muslims in China, the same as the Muslims in Afghanistan. And the Uyghurs are a fierce people, and Genghis Khan used the Uyghurs as bodyguards. That's how tough these guys were. And there were four Uyghurs in Gitmo. And they says, we're going to turn these guys loose. So they sent them to Bermuda. <laughs> They're living in a villa in Bermuda, going swimming in the ocean, fishing, having a fine time on our, our dollar. We're paying for their accommodations in Bermuda because the Chinese don't want them back. They don't want these Uyghurs back. Leave them in Bermuda. You can't make this stuff up. I mean, from the courage shown by by John Parker on Lexington Green and the courage shown by those men from Woburn who stood on Lexington Green that morning, made that choice instantly. One of them ran back to Woburn. And when the British retreated from Concord, Woburn and several other militias, Sudbury militia were waiting for the British. They had to cross a bridge in order to get either that or wade up to their armpits in ice-cold water. So they had to cross this bridge to go back. And the men from Woburn knew that they'd killed one of their fellow militia people on Lexington Green, and they were waiting for him. And they hammered him. This, I'll leave you in suspense. And I'll mention this again just prior to April 19th. Tell a little more of this story. But meanwhile, you can come to a Liberty Seed. Just get a hold of us. Appleseedinfo.org. We will come to your church. We'll come to your town hall. We'll come to your grange. We'll come to the Knights of Columbus or the, or the Masons or the Rotary Club or the Lions Club and tell the story because Americans need to reconnect with their history. So, I like this stuff. I don't have to look it up. I know the history. I know the courage. And I served with such men. My door gunners were all volunteers. And the pilots were all volunteers. Today, well now it's 46 years ago, but but uh, 46 years ago today I was flying in the Mekong Delta with such men as the men that stood on Lexington Green. This has been the Northern Maine Landman Show on the Constitutional Radio Network, the Conscience of Maine, broadcast today on TalkShoe Radio on the Internet. Just Google it, 
and search for the Northern Maine Landman, and you'll find me. About 257 shows in the past. So if you ever get really bored on a snowy day, you can listen to some of these shows. And like another famous radio broadcaster, I'm right 99-point-something percent of the time. If I ever get make a mistake or an error, feel free to contact me, and I'll correct it. I've done it. I made a mistake, and I corrected it. Be safe. God bless.